Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Josh Hammer Show. So this week we are shining a spotlight on the issue that the entire world, certainly the entire Western media, is shining a spotlight on, which is, of course, the horrific, absolutely horrific conflict that is happening right now in Eastern Europe, happening in Ukraine, obviously after weeks and weeks of buildup. Vladimir Putin has he has gone in. I personally did not necessarily expect it. It seemed to me like it was a lot of kind of fake news that was kind of disseminated. It seemed to me like the narrative was that it was kind of inevitable, and I didn't necessarily expect him to do so, but he has indeed done so, as the entire world has woken up to. And we've seen this terrible footage, obviously, over the, over the last week or so, kind of starting there in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, and the tanks have obviously been rolling in really to Kiev. And kind of at the time that we are recording, um, the, the, the media narratives are a little hard to untangle here. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, too. It's very hard to kind of separate what is fact and what is fiction, what is pro-Russia propaganda, what is pro-Ukraine propaganda. But it certainly does seem that the Russian forces are kind of surrounding Kiev, which is, of course, the Ukrainian capital at this moment, Game of Thrones style, for lack of a better word. And um, you know, we'll obviously see where it goes from here. Pretty, pretty harrowing stuff. I guess the reason that I kind of want to spend a lot of time on this, besides the fact that it's obviously the issue of the day, the week, the month, the year. I mean, it's you know, I mean, this this has potential, obviously, to be kind of the European theater's fullest form military conflict in many decades. So it's a it's it's a massive, massive issue. But I guess the main reason I kind of want to spend some time focusing on this is that it seems to me like a lot of people all across the aisle, all across the media landscape, seem to really be getting this one wrong. And what I mean by that is the situation at hand, I think, calls for empiricism, judgment, and nuance, none of which is a particularly popular thing in today's day and age, where so many people, so many partisans of all political stripes, so many ideologues try to oversimplify everything and really just dumb everything down and make everything kind of this very black versus white, good versus evil narrative. And look, from my perspective, certainly, there are a lot of conflicts in the world. I have always thought that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict effectively amounts to light versus darkness. And that's not to say, obviously, that Israel is without its mistakes. It's, you know, it certainly has made any number of mistakes, obviously. But I, I think that is but, but one foreign conflict example of a clearly good, just, righteous, and correct side versus a fundamentally evil and terrorist-ridden side on the other side. The situation in Russia, Ukraine is a little different. It is, it is not necessarily this stark, stark sort of moral dichotomy here. We're, we're going to break that down a little bit. But far too many I would say in kind of the, uh, you know, the Western press, the Western European press, certainly the North American press as well, is really trying to kind of paint this juxtaposition, this dichotomy between kind of revanchist Russian imperialism on the one hand, you know, I mean, at least kind of Cold War era Russian imperialism, maybe even kind of, you know, Peter the Great style <laughs> Russian imp imperialism. 
on the one hand, and against this notion of Ukraine as this fantastic, great, unambiguously good and just bastion of liberal Western democracy on the other hand here. And look, this is kind of the the stark dichotomy that I, I, I have to take some issue with here. I, I, I did kind of a long tweet thread on this. The reality is Vladimir Putin, obviously, let's stipulate right off the top here, lest some of the haters kind of say, oh, Hammer's a pro-Putin pundit or whatever. Um, no, my anti-Putin bona fides, I think, are pretty unquestioned here. And let's just stipulate right off the top that Vladimir Putin is a thug, okay? He is, he, he is a thug. He murders his political enemies. He has murdered Navalny, the dissident, who, of course, Russia poisoned when he was in the EU in Germany, if I recall. He murders his political enemies. He is a profoundly corrupt, and I would even go so far as to say, largely speaking, evil man. Um, that's not to say hypothetically that in kind of a real politic geopolitical chessboard, America cannot ally with him on certain issues. I'm actually fairly open to that. Um, I'm actually open to the possibility of trying to use Russia as a cudgel against China, which is kind of the real geopolitical threat of all geopolitical threats. But the reality is that Vladimir Putin is a Soviet-era relic. He is a he's a relic of the Cold War. He was actually working for the KGB in in East Berlin in 1989. It's the year that the Berlin Wall fell. And time and time again, he has kind of gone out there on the world on, on the world stage, and he has just said that he has lamented. He 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 has openly weeped the dissolution, the breakdown, the fall of communism, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He has referred to it as one of the greatest geopolitical tragedies in modern history. And I have no doubt whatsoever that if he had his druthers, I mean, if he could make the world right, according to Vladimir Putin's bizarre conception of what is right then Russia would go ahead and go back to incorporate Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Armenia, all the former kind of, you know, former Soviet satellite states. That is what he wants to do in the grand scheme of things. And his kind of pretextual speech before the troops actually went into the Donbass region, that's basically what he said. He basically said that Ukraine is, um, you know, it, it, it's a fake country with, with a fake culture, with a fake history that's always been part of Russia and so forth and so forth. Um, uh, look, I am not a historian. Uh, I am not a linguist. I am not kind of fit to kind of prune out the details necessarily of whether Russian and Ukrainian are distinct enough languages or distinct enough cultures here. But that certainly is the way that Vladimir Putin views it. But and here's the big but here. On the other hand, Ukraine is not like a bastion of liberal democracy people. Uh, this is a ridiculous notion that I think the Western media and kind of a very easily duped and manipulated Western audience has started to imbibe like mother's milk. This is the country of Hunter Biden and Burisma. I mean, have we, have we forgotten that story? Have we forgotten how Hunter Biden was making $50,000 a month to be an advisor on a Ukrainian energy company board with no putative expertise whatsoever for the obvious reason that this Ukrainian company simply wanted direct access to, to the Obama-Biden White House back in the day? I mean, have we just totally forgotten about that? Ukraine, of course, and you know, the, Vladimir Zelensky himself, the president of Ukraine, I mean, he was literally front and center of the first Trump impeachment back in 2019, which was obviously a farcical impeachment based on you know a, a five-page transcript that, that had nothing whatsoever to do with anything that would remotely rise to an impeachable standard, which I argued at great length at the time. But Ukraine 
let's take it back even further that actually around 2013 2014 so remember obviously guys the fall of the berlin berlin walls 1989 the soviet union formally kind of transitions to russia by 1991 a lot of these kind of central and eastern european former soviet satellite states by definition the fact that they just endured decades and decades of top-down authoritarian oppressive command and control communist soviet politburo rule by dint of that fact, their economies and their ways of life obviously have many times kind of struggled to catch up with Western Europe. Now, that's starting to change, obviously. This, we kind of talked about this actually on the last podcast when I was over in Hungary, which was um, under the Iron Curtain. It kind of was Soviet-controlled for decades and decades. And I was in, I was in Poland last year. I, I spoke with, with Prime Minister Morawiecki there in Warsaw last May. Poland, obviously, was also very much under the Iron Curtain. Um, the entire Warsaw Pact, obviously, involved Warsaw. <laughs> um, so a lot of these countries are on the up and up. But Ukraine, even compared to some of its kind of Central and Eastern European, uh, you know, the actors in the region, Poland, Hungary, you know, certainly Czech Republic and, 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 and Slovakia, I mean, probably even relative, honestly, to some more kind of southeastern states, I mean, arguably even relative to like a Bulgaria, for, for, honestly, Ukraine has kind of always struggled perhaps a little more than the others. There, it's a large country. There's a lot of kind of, I think, intellectual talent in the country. There's a lot of kind of... Um, you know, to uh, ascend in technology there. I actually personally know people who are involved in kind of the investment space who have some investments in uh, in the Ukraine uh, as far as kind of software and e-commerce are concerned. So that's not to say that there's any uh, like a huge amount of, of raw human capital talent there. But at a political level, Ukraine has often has oftentimes lagged even behind its kind of Central and Eastern European countries in the region. And as recently as 2013 to 2014, the Ukrainian national leadership at the time was trending in a very kind of pro-Russia direction, ultimately kind of culminating in the 2013-2014 era rejection of formal kind of closer ties between um, Ukraine and the rest of the EU. Uh, Ukraine is not a part of the EU. It's not a part of NATO either. And at the time, the kind of pro-Russian government was then ousted. So Ukraine basically had a, had a full-on revolution as recently as 2014, at the time, the pre, under the kind of auspices of the previous kind of pro-Russia government in 2014, various kind of rankings, various watchdogs, international organizations, if you will, had ranked Ukraine among the most profoundly corrupt countries in the world. Um, this is not that long ago. This was only seven or eight years ago, okay? Um, they, they were at that time one of, if not the most corrupt countries in the world. And when we're talking here about corruption, we're talking about the fact that the mafia, the Ukrainian mafia, is very powerful. The oligarchs, you know, it's a term that we oftentimes kind of hear bandied about with respect to Russia, and it's true, the Russian oligarchs are extremely powerful, these kind of oil and natural gas barons, these titans of, of industry. They are also extremely powerful in the Ukraine, and they wield outsized power in Kiev and kind of directing the government. And, you know, look, when I was in Hungary, like, just a couple weeks ago, I remember I was driving around with a new friend I made there, very nice guy, and he, we were talking a little bit about this, and he told me that he thought, from his perspective, sitting there in Budapest, Hungary, that Ukraine was an even more profoundly oligarchy-driven and corrupt country than even Russia. And his thought on this, again, him living there in Hungary next to Ukraine, was that President Zelensky, he thought, probably feared for his life on most days because the oligarchs literally wield that much power there in, in Kiev. Um, 
the situation is a little more nuanced because Hungary and Ukraine in particular have somewhat frosty relations because of the way Ukraine treats their ethnic Hungarian minority on near the Ukrainian Hungarian border there in Western Ukraine. So this gets dicey, obviously, and it gets unnecessarily complicated. But the point here is that this Russia-Ukraine stark, stark, stark dichotomy is, from my perspective, a little overstated. Now, having said all that, that's not to say that we should be wishy-washy on whose side here we want to take. I mean, from a U.S. national interest perspective, which, when it comes to foreign policy, is the only perspective I think we should ever be taking. And there is no point in thinking about the interest of any other country. There is no point in thinking about kind of moralistic kind of exporting of values. I mean, this obviously was the hubris, the conceit of kind of the entire kind of, um, you know, Bush era freedom agenda, the kind of neoconservative, neoliberal kind of promote Western liberalism, orthodoxy. All that is BS, and we should not be thinking about it. So from a U.S. national interest perspective, it seems to me that we should be taking cues from our stalwart allies in the region, like the Poles. And the Poles, of course, among our other allies in the region, do not want Ukraine to fall under the influence of Vladimir Putin. So to take another country in the region, Belarus, Belarus, which is sits directly east of Poland and directly north of Ukraine, Belarus is effectively, from what I can tell, I have not been to Belarus, but from what I can tell from having been in the region and from what I've read on the outside, is effectively a a fairly lawless dictatorship at this point. Lukashenko, um, I mean, he seems to be just unapologetically rigging elections, jailing journalists in the opposition, things of that nature here. And Lukashenko is very much a Putin puppet. In fact, in in the current conflict, Belarus has gone so far as to say that they will send their own military into Ukraine to assist the Russian forces. So you can understand clearly from our allies' perspective, from the Polish perspective, uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and our Baltic state allies, um, Hungary as well, even though, like I said, it's a little more complicated there. But you can understand why they would not want Ukraine falling under the sphere of influence of a Cold War aspiring ex-KGB thug who murders political enemies and just wants to kind of resuscitate the Soviet communist empire. Let's take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So there's been this narrative, I think, from certain parts of the Western press and kind of liberal blue checks on Twitter and whatever, that there was kind of this large, quote unquote, pro-Putin contingent of the American right. The former president, Donald Trump, is, of course, kind of ground zero, I think, for this criticism. And he had something to say on this at his recent speech at CPAC in Orlando, Florida. So let's let's roll a tape on that. Yesterday, reporters asked me if I thought President Putin was smart. I said, of course he's smart, to which I was greeted with, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. I'd like to tell the truth. Yes, he's smart. The NATO nations, and indeed the world, as he looks over what's happening strategically with no repercussions or threats whatsoever, they're not so smart. They're looking the opposite of smart. If you take over Ukraine, We're going to sanction you, they say. Sanction? Well, that's a pretty weak statement. 
Putin is saying, oh, they're going to sanction me. They sanctioned me for the last 25 years. You mean I can take over a whole country and they're going to sanction me? You mean they're not going to blow us to pieces, at least psychologically? The problem is not that Putin is smart, which of course he's smart, but the real problem is that our leaders are dumb. Dumb. And they so far allowed him to get away with this travesty and assault on humanity. That's what it is. This is an assault on humanity. So sad. I would argue after listening to that clip (laughs) that not only is former President Trump clearly not a pro-Putin, pro-Russia sycophant, if anything, I worry that he's sounding slightly too hawkish of a tone. I mean, this rhetoric of kind of blowing people to pieces there. I, I would say giving kind of the volatile, kinetic, and changing situation on the ground there seems to me like uh, probably a little too tough, almost kind of um, really kind of playing with fi- fire there. Reminds me a little bit of what um, of what one of Trump's not-so-best friends, um, you know, uh, uh, Congressman Adam, Adam Kinder, what he said in kind of calling for a no-fly zone, for a U.S.-imposed no-fly zone over Ukraine, Let's not mince any words here. When I, I, to be clear, I am not attributing this to Trump. I, didn't, I, I have not heard him say no fly zone. We're talking here about Congressman Kinzinger, um, who's extremely hawkish in foreign policy and is also uh, extremely anti-Trump. But when he's calling for something like a no fly zone, okay, a no fly zone literally means in this particular context that the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. military in general would be shooting down Russian airplanes over Ukraine. This is extraordinarily dangerous stuff, people, when you are talking about a nuclear power, let alone a nuclear power like Russia, where that nuclear arsenal is clearly in the hands of a madman like Vladimir Putin here. So this sort of stuff should be clearly off the table from my perspective. The The principal stance, okay, the principal stance of, of the U.S. interest in the region is best served by having Zelensky stay in power and preventing the imposition of a Putin puppet state similar to Belarus. But the means of doing so have to be carefully tailored to that end. So, for example, when it comes to Russia, and the, the Russian economy is like the, it's like, it's like the 11th or 12th biggest economy in the world. It's literally s- smaller than Italy's economy. I think it's even smaller than South Korea, for goodness sake, okay? We're talking here about a petro state of what, from my perspective, looks almost similar to kind of like a Saudi Persian Gulf style petro state. There are some other industries like the steel industry where Russia has excelled in the post-Cold War era. And it's not very hard to figure out why, because in the cold European winter, and we're kind of still in the winter months here, in the cold winter, you know, when the German government has people in Berlin or Munich or Hamburg or whatever who need to stay warm, and they're already kind of staying warm on Russian-powered oil and natural gas, well, obviously, you're not going to stand up to to Russia. I mean, this is not particularly complicated stuff here. So I think there's a lot of kind of duplicity and mealy-mouthed nonsense, frankly, from our putative European allies. So a lot to unpack on that front as well. But let's take it to another quick break. This is such a complex story, so many layers. We have not really talked about kind of the Chinese aspect here, Taiwan, any of that. So a lot still to come. Stay with us. We will be right back.
line that's being trotted out by folks in the media, folks on the left, that conservatives at the Republican Party, Trump himself, and kind of kind of the post-Trump GOP, the notion that they are kind of Russia doves, and this obviously goes back to Russia Gate and Michael Flynn and Crossfire Hurricane, and you know the years and years and years by which the intelligence community and the deep state tried to sink Trump's presidency. But this notion that conservatives are somehow light on Russia, light on Putin, has now been kind of juxtaposed with this farcical notion that the Biden administration, and I guess by extension Democrats, are somehow tough on Russia. Obviously, we know that that is false. That was kind of the entire purpose, obviously, of our discussing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the greatest victory Putin could have had. But let's also go back in history a little bit here, guys, just to kind of shine a spotlight on how hypocritical Democrats are on the issue of Russia. I mean, I remember as far back as the 2012 presidential debates between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama when this very subject came up. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat because a few months ago when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia, not al-Qaeda. You said Russia in the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Russia, I indicated, is a geopolitical foe. Not a, number one. Excuse me. It's a geopolitical foe. And I said in the same in the same paragraph, I said, and Iran is the greatest national security threat we face. Russia does continue to battle us in the U.N. time and time again. I have clear eyes on this. I'm not going to wear rose colored glasses when it comes to Russia or Mr. Putin. And I'm certainly not going to say to him, I'll give you more flexibility after the election. First of all, <laughs> um, very difficult to reconcile that sort of outright condescension from Barack Obama with the sort of rhetoric that we're hearing from uh, Joe Biden in, in, in the current day. Joe Biden is a man, frankly, who doesn't know what year it is. It's very, it's very difficult to watch him on TV. I'll just, I'll be honest with you. I mean, like he had that interview with Lester Holt of NBC News a couple weeks ago. If I recall, it took him three times to say the word Ukraine correctly. He kept on wanting to say a different country. Very, very, very hard to watch this guy and have anything other than just fear, fear and trepidation as to what our geopolitical rivals in the stage think about this man. But he's obviously trying to talk a tough game on Russia now. From my perspective, by the way, what's really going on here is that Biden is looking at historical, historical wipeouts this fall. The Democratic Party is going to get wrecked at the ballot box this fall if the indications are anything remotely resembling correct. His approval rating, obviously, negative 14, negative 15. Independents, by and large, say the economy is in a terrible shape. They say Biden's not handling immigration and the border very well. We're obviously facing 40 to 45-year highs at inflation, which is kind of an issue that it's impossible to look away from. Everyone feels it at the grocery store, at the gas pump. So from my perspective, what's really going on here is Joe Biden, who obviously, you know, is in his late 70s. He kind of came of political age during the Cold War. You know, he needs kind of a nice distraction. What's an easier thing to do if you're kind of a Cold Warrior and you need a, a distraction from your domestic woes, then go pick on the ex-KGB guy. So that seems to me like at least half of really what is going on here. And, and that's not to say that Putin didn't want to invade Ukraine. He definitely did, okay? I mean, like he has openly professed that the breakup of the Soviet Union is one of the worst tragedies in modern history. So I have no doubt that Putin had these aspirations, but it seems to me like Biden also, frankly, conveniently could have used kind of a foreign distraction from his domestic woes here. The other kind of geopolitical element of this story, and this really is kind of the elephant in the room, is what it means for China, and especially for China with respect to Taiwan. 
from a U.S. national security, national interest perspective here, China is, by orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude, our most urgent and all-encompassing threat. When I was in Budapest about a week and a half ago, someone from local Hungarian media was interviewing me, and he said, from your perspective, from an American perspective, what are the five most important foreign policy challenges? And I paused and said, well, number one is China, number two is China, number three is China, and then four and five are also China. That's the game, guys, okay? The Chinese economy, obviously, is number two behind only the U.S., they are rapidly, rapidly, rapidly building up the, the People's Liberation Army. They are now shooting hypersonic missiles that can go around the world in kind of a seemingly fraction of a second. The Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative is this transcontinental harrowing project trying to reach deep into the heart of the European continent. They are all over the Middle East. They have this memorandum of, of understanding with Iran last year. They're, they're obviously helping to implicitly, if not explicitly, fund the Iranian nuclear program. They have a new naval base in the Horn of Africa in the country of Djibouti. They are, they're all over. I mean, um, they are all, all over the region. And by the way, they're actually all over the Western Hemisphere as well. The, China is deeply um, involved with, with the Cuban regime 90 miles off the, the shores of Florida, where I'm living. They are all up and down uh, Venezuela, Colombia. Uh, China is China's the game right now, okay? China is the game. So that kind of cuts both ways, Okay. And it cuts both ways because on the one hand, on the one hand, Xi Jinping obviously is going to look at Western kind of weakness vis-a-vis Putin going into Ukraine, and he's going to smile. I mean, he's, he's going to look across the Taiwan Straits. He's going to look, look at the island of Taiwan, and he's going to start to kind of get his delusions of grandeur up and running about kind of sending in the People's Liberation Army to take Taiwan. No doubt about that. I mean, like weakness, obviously, by definition, kind of, you know, invites kind of strong men to kind of pursue their agendas here. No doubt about that. On the other hand, and again, this is where the situation really calls for nuance, I think. On the other hand, a lot of neocons and neoliberals who are focusing so much on this and saying, oh, if we don't fight Putin like he's Hitler here in Ukraine, then she will just run over the world. They are overplaying their hand dramatically here. They're They're overplaying their hand dramatically for at least two reasons. One is these people don't even take themselves apparently that seriously because the same people that are saying, you know, fight Putin going into Ukraine like it's Hitler going into Poland in September 1939 are also the same people who on the other side of their mouth, they're saying, oh, but no one's actually calling for the U.S. armed forces to go into Kiev. Well, you know what, guys? Pick one. If Putin is actually Hitler and if Ukraine is actually Poland, then you're damn right that we should be sending in the U.S. armed forces because that's going to lead to World War III. So by their own kind of word, they don't seem to take this seriously, and they're not taking it seriously because I think deep down they know Ukraine is not like a Poland, is not necessarily like a Czech Republic. It is a, it is a uniquely kind of corrupt state, even as far as European countries are concerned here, going back to the 2014 revolution, all the aftermath of that. And there are kind of very difficult kind of judgment calls implicit in this. The big thing here, especially talking about Putin and the end of the Cold War, for at least 20, 25, maybe 30 years, okay, after the, uh, the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, the Soviet Union formally kind of becomes Russia in 1991, for a solid 10, 20 years, 25 years after that, the U.S., okay, an entire generation of Americans, and look, I was born in 1989. I was born the year that the Berlin Wall fell. I am a part of this generation. I am a part of this mentality and this mindset, or at least I used to be. <laughs> The, this entire generation of Americans grew up in what we, we might call the unipolar moment, okay? The era of sole, unapologetic, and unambiguous global American hegemony, of global American hegemony. 
And then obviously in kind of the early 2000s, this translated in kind of into kind of the Bush era, you know, freedom agenda, the forcible exportation of democracy, which obviously has not particularly ended well in places like Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But the upshot here, as we look back at the, at the rise of China, as we look back at Xi Jinping basically taking over Hong Kong in de facto fashion without anyone firing a shot. I mean, China, as, as we saw in headlines, you know, all throughout the year last year, has basically overtaken Hong Kong decades before the 2047 or 2049, whatever the year was, kind of formal transfer of Hong Kong to full Chinese Communist Party jurisdiction. They basically took that over without without uh, firing a shot. Their military is on the march. They've, they've got the naval base, like I said, in the Horn of Africa, looking over Yemen and kind of these very consequential waterways there. The point here is that the unipolar moment is over. And I don't know how many times we have to say this, nor if this to resonate, because there was, there was a certain kind of Cold War era mindset. And this mindset, frankly, is when I see among kind of my, my fellow conservatives, probably more than anyone else, it's this notion that the unipolar moment was here to stay forever. Think back to Francis Fukuyama. Okay, Francis Fukuyama's basic contention, his basic argument in the 1990s was that we were heading towards a time and place, that that liberal democracy was going to be kind of uh, ubiquitous, that every country would eventually transfer towards this. I'm playing a little fast and loose with Fukuyama's thesis, admittedly. But the idea here is that we're kind of entering kind of a, a, a new golden age where liberal democracies would be prevalent throughout the world and that therefore all countries would get along, they would hold hands, they would sing kumbaya, blah, 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 blah. But as we've all seen here, especially in kind of the aftermath of China's ascension to the World Trade Organization, which, by the way, Joe Biden was one of the leading, the leading proponents for in the U.S. Senate at the time back in 2001, as we've now seen kind of since that happened in 2001, it simply has not happened, okay? Economic liberalization, global globalization, none of this has, has in any way mitigated whatsoever the rise of China. And China has become so, so powerful, really, and, 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 you know, the kind of vestigial kind of Cold War era, you know, Russia hawkishness on the part of the U.S. Has, has, has continued to pace such that, you know, Putin and Xi are now kind of openly talking about kind of a new anti-American alliance, a new world order. So I don't necessarily have a good way out of this mess. It is a mess here. I think a prudent type of statesman um, might try to kind of play Russia and China off each other to the extent that we can, then that necessarily also militates in favor of not taking kind of a, you know, Adam Kinzinger no-fly zone-esque ultra-uber-hawkish warmongering line on Ukraine. So the the best way forward in the, in the mid to long term might be to try to kind of find a way to try to drive a cudgel, try to kind of drive a wedge between Russia and China and try to find a way to kind of bring Russia to the extent remotely feasible away from Xi Jinping's sphere of influence. But hold, even holding that aside and just kind of recognizing the rise of China, which is kind of a, a you know, that's the, the decade long story, probably the story of this century, the unipolar moment is, is over. And from an American national security and military perspective here, we have to recognize that. I mean, it was under the Obama administration in particular that the U.S. government formally kind of did away with its prior commitment to fight a two-front war. And what I mean by that is that for decades and decades, it was kind of the the telos, if you will, it's kind of the purpose of the Pentagon, of the U.S. Department of Defense, to be able to kind of ready our military forces to fight a two-front war all-out war if need be. That was kind of the the Cold War era 
guiding light for U.S. defense and military policy. Around the time of the Obama administration, we actually did away with that. That is no longer kind of U.S. guiding policy here. And because of just the rise of China and their economy and the fact, you know, China obviously has access to all sorts of kind of supply chains. Um, They control a disproportionate share of even militarily sensitive equipment like semiconductors and ships. We have to be realistic. The age of kind of ideological, idealistic foreign policy is over. The name of the game is sober, sober realism. And I am deeply worried about an extended American commitment to a, a, a theater of the world that is less strategically relevant, in this case, kind of Central and, and especially, you know, Eastern Europe. And I worry that that is just a total misprioritization of resources. Uh, when the name of the game is kind of in the Far East right now, where we should really be focusing like none other on kind of arming our allies in the region, the Far East, the South Korea, Japan, to the extent Japan will allow it, they have a, obviously a difficult history when it comes to um, arms. Uh, uh, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki weigh very heavily on the Japanese conscience. I, I've been to Japan twice. I've seen it for myself. But that is really where we should be kind of focusing our resources. And again, that's not to say that we should not support Ukraine. As I've been very clear in this podcast, Ukraine commands American support. It is better for an American national interest perspective if Zelensky stays in power and the country does not fall into the hands of a Belarusian-style Putin puppet state. The means of doing so can vary. They can be kind of oligarch-specific targeting sanctions, um, certainly um, you know, swift sanctions. So the, the Biden administration has kind of waffled on that. I, I have no particular issue um, with, with going the route of kind of international financial sanctions uh, vis-a-vis the SWIFT program. But uh, again, this is not World War III. Putin is not Hitler, and it is dramatically irresponsible to talk about kind of sending mass American troops to the ground in what is a very hot conflict right now. These images are scarring. I mean, these images of kind of apartment buildings that, that are torn asunder here, hospitals, orphanages. Again, it's very, it's very hard to tell what is fake news and what is not because the Russian propaganda, the Twitter accounts, and the, and the Ukraine propaganda, the Twitter accounts are both kind of, you know, in all-out mode right now. But these images are genuinely scarring, and we should not want U.S. troops anywhere near that. There is no reason whatsoever why, as an American, why I should want my troops any closer to the Russia-Ukraine border, any closer to Kiev, than, oh, I don't know. How about French troops, British troops, German troops? Now, German troops, obviously, similar to the Japan scenario, comes with some unique historical baggage, to put it mildly. But Germany, nonetheless, has recently announced that it's going to sink, I believe I saw it was $100 billion into its military. They're going to raise their kind of um, defense as a percentage of GDP commitments. If, if you recall, by the way, this was another area where President Trump was extremely, extremely prescient. He called on our, on our NATO allies to kind of raise their defense as a percentage of GDP to at least 2%. Most European countries are like, are like 1% at best. And what he was really getting at here was he was implicitly criticizing that that duplicity, that kind of two-faced mentality that we alluded to earlier in the program, where a country like Germany is relying on Russia for energy and oil to kind of heat their homes, while at the same time relying on the American security umbrella. So again, you, Trump's point was, and he, he was totally right about this, you can't have it both ways. You got to pick one, okay? You can't just mollycoddle up to the United States while at the same time coddle up to kind of our, our, our foremost geopolitical adversaries, in, in particular China, of course. 
But look, um, at the end of the day here, we should use prudential means to support Ukraine, to support the Ukrainian people and to oppose Putin going into Russia. But the name of the game is prudence. And in a hypothetical world, in a hypothetical world, where if Putin's surrounding Kiev were, were to actually lead to the deposing of Zelensky, what were to actually lead to Zelensky trying to flee the country and, and kind of Russian imposition of a Belarusian style puppet state, I do not necessarily think at that point the calculation changes for the very same reason that, again, if that outcome does not necessitate kind of British and French involvement, then it sure does not necessarily necessitate American involvement. I would prefer that Ukraine stay as a as a reasonably Western-aligned country, as a, as a country that is free from Putin's sphere of influence, that is reasonably close with Poland and some of our other allies in the region here. But it is simply not worth American troops on the ground, let alone a freaking no-fly zone, for God's sake, to prevent that outcome if need truly be here. So let's take it to a quick break here. We're going to wrap up on the other side with just, just some kind of closing thoughts on Putin's endgame and where this whole thing is going to go from here. So stay with us. We will be right back. So the question then is, what happens? What, you know, it's, it's kind of like prediction mode for everyone. I mean, what happens from here? You know, as we're recording this, there are kind of new images out of a, buildings that are being shelled, hollowed out. And again, the question is, what is Putin's endgame? What does he actually want to accomplish out of this? And it's a little hard to tell. It's a little hard to tell, admittedly, because part of the reason is that he is an ide- ideologically crazed madman. I cannot emphasize that point enough. I mean, this is a guy, again, who I think for the past... 33 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall wakes up most days lamenting the end of the Soviet Union and and, and wishing, praying for the possible future reunification of the Soviet Union. So it's very difficult to know here, but here's basically what I think is going to happen here. So with every day, possibly every hour that that, that, that this thing goes on, as the sanctions only kind of exacerbate, as they kind of ratchet up, it seems to me that uh, the oligarchs there in Moscow are, are, are going to be sufficiently kind of punished from these various sanctions that Putin's kind of pressure is going to ratchet up more and more and more. One possible kind of analogy that a friend of mine made the other day, and this kind of resonated with me a little bit, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of, of what I remember from a history course about kind of the 1956 Suez Canal crisis, where the British and French basically went in, they kind of joined forces um, with Israel to reassert control in, in the Suez Canal region there in, 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 the, in the Sinai. And it was a very quick military victory. But the problem is that for reasons that are still a little unclear to me, President Eisenhower in the U.S. was extremely, extremely wary of this. And he basically told the British to call it off, call off the nonsense. And it did not play well back home in the U.K. Back, uh, domestically, back in Britain, it was kind of a political disaster, even though it was a quick military victory. So that's kind of something that I could possibly see playing out here, where even if Putin were to actually capture Kiev eventually over the next week or so, it's, it's possible to see how this could be like a military victory, but even an in, in internal domestic political defeat. So I guess at the end of the day, if I were making predictions here, what I would predict 
is that within the next week, week and a half at the most, this thing will probably, probably, okay, I realize I, realize I, could, I could eat my words here, but will probably be all over. And I think it'll probably be all over. First of all, Russia and Ukraine officials are already negotiating. Um, they're already negotiating right now. But I think it'll probably be all over because I think Ukraine and kind of the EU and the U.S. are probably prepared, actually, reasonably so, I would think are probably prepared to give Putin at least some of what he wants. If he wants to kind of take over of these largely Russian ethnic parts of the Donbass in, in eastern Ukraine to kind of give him that land bridge to Crimea, that's really not the end of the world, okay? Again, this is not analogous to Hitler going into the Sudanland in the Czech Republic in, in, the, in the late 1930s. These two things are just not the same. Russia is not Nazi Germany. It, it is categorically different. So I think if, if, the, if the West were to basically give Putin that, if they were to kind of take Ukraine's ascension to NATO off the table, uh, given the ratcheting up kind of domestic tension at home, it's very easy to see a world in which Putin could kind of declare victory on that note and get the hell out of Ukraine. So we'll see how it all shakes out here, obviously. there's It's a, it's a rapidly moving, very frenzied and kinetic situation. I don't want to eat my words. I think I could, <laughs> but I guess we'll see how it all looks one week from now. But, you know, for now, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this special Ukraine-Russia edition of The Josh Hammer Show, and I will see you next week.